Our sermon text comes to us from Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be reading verses 15 through 17. And I would invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word for that. If not, let the words just wash over you as they were meant to be from the very mouth of God to us and coming to us inerrantly and infallibly and sufficiently for all that we need under the sun. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. You may be seated. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. We say that every week because we need to know. It just comes from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8. It's repeated elsewhere in the New Testament. We say that every week because we need to know what the word of God is and why we put so much emphasis on it. So let me pray for us. Father in heaven, you are our Savior and our God, and we ask now that you would superintend the time that we have. Lord, we know that our text is about redeeming the time, and we ask that you would redeem this time. We know that the days are evil. We know there is uh, an un countable, an innumerable amount of evil acts going on even outside the doors of where we're meeting right now. But Lord, as we gather here as your people, just a little small covey, would you use this time to edify us, to sharpen us, to clarify in our minds truth from lies? And would you use this time to draw glory to yourself? Well, we know it is no small thing when any number of people gather together in your name And so, Lord, as we approach this time where the word is opened and you speak to us, give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that long to apply and to put into practice. Let us not be mere hearers of the word who delude themselves, but doers of the word. We ask this humbly yet expectantly in the name of Christ. Amen. 1 Chronicles 12, 32 referenced it before, says this, of the sons of Issachar, men who understood the times with knowledge of what Israel should do. Sons of Issachar. It's in a long list of uh, what's going on in First Chronicles at that time and numbering and naming lots of people, but it gives this description of the sons of Issachar. And we would be wise to long to be like those kinds of men, understood the times, and knew what Israel should do. So the question is posed to you today, do you know what time it is? And do you know what Christians should be doing? What is going on and how do we live faithfully? What is the cultural zeitgeist? Zeitgeist is a German word, zeit, time, geist, ghost, or spirit, the spirit of the age. What is, what is the spirit of the day, the spirit of the times? And then where is the narrow path? Because the Christian life, as we know from our text, is to be lived full of awareness and intentionality. Christ himself modeled this for us. Everything that he did in the, the three years that we have recorded, and then I guess also when he was 12, that, that episode in Luke 2, 
Everything he did was intentional. Nothing was ever indifferent or aimless at all what he did. Let me give you an example. Mark 1, 35 and following. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Now, that's even more impactful when you know the context that he spent the entire day beforehand healing people ad nauseum. They just kept coming to him. So the next morning, he wakes up before it's even light out to go somewhere where nobody is and pray. And Simon and his companions searched for him, and they found him and said to him, everyone's looking for you, meaning all those people are back. They want to see more supernatural. They want to see more miracles. They're here for that. And Jesus said, okay, let's get the line going again. What did he say? Let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for, (coughs) meaning I'm not just doing what comes to me. I'm living intentionally. And he was acutely aware of the cultural status in that in which he lived. Matthew 17, 17, in the context of a greater situation, Jesus answered them and said, you unbelieving and perverted generation, how long am I going to be with you? He knew the kind of people that he was living around. Unbelieving and backwards. And he did not waste his time. John 9, 4, Jesus says, we must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day, night is coming when no one can work. Using that night and day illustration to say you can only work in the day because in the first century world, there are not high beams. There are not lighting tripods you can set up. You can only work when you can see because the time's coming when you can't work, when it's going to be dark. So Jesus was after, didn't waste his time. And he relentlessly pursued the will of the Father. Most clearly seen in Luke 22 when he's in the garden praying, verse 41, and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and he knelt down and began to pray saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. If you're unfamiliar with what Jesus is doing at this time, he knows the cross comes tomorrow. He knows that he's going to die for the sins of the world and he's saying, is there any other way? But yet not my will, but yours be done. If there's any other way, I would love that, but I'm only going to do your will. And then an angel of heaven appeared from him, strengthening him, and he, being in agony, was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling upon the ground. That's how seriously he was following his father's will. Now, we must not strive for less than the examples of our Savior, lest we be found to bear his name in vain. See, before Paul, in the book of Ephesians, before he transitions into another section that's coming in verse 22 through chapter 6, verse 9, he's going to be dealing with relationships that have authority uh, and followers. But before he does that, he's issuing one last wake-up call. Before he gets into those relationships and the, the, the dynamics they're in, one last wake-up call for everybody in the whole church, regardless of gender, ethnicity, economic status. This is for everybody, everywhere in the church of Christ, everyone who has bowed the knee in faith in Christ. Because in every era, the church is in danger of falling asleep, growing dull to the times and growing indifferent to the will of God. And it's no different in our era. We know that the church has grown dull, fat, slow, blind, and deaf. She's been, like my old high school football coach used to say, he's from West Texas, she, the church today has been standing around counting her change. 
And when you, you when he when he say that to us when we were playing, he'd say you're standing around counting your change. It means you weren't paying attention. You didn't realize play was still going on, and somebody came out of nowhere and cleaned your clock. Standing around counting, no change, kids. What change is is uh, money used to be a paper rectangle and then metal circles, and you could count it. You'd have to, and they wouldn't count for you, and so you'd have to count it. And that's what they were talking about. You're wasting your time counting your change. But what Paul is doing, he's calling us to wake up to wise up, to walk carefully and redeem the time. That's what he's being led by the Spirit to call us to. So verse 15, we will see that we are called to walk intentionally in wisdom. Verse 15 says, therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. Now, the therefore harkens back to what we were talking about earlier, the light and the dark metaphor, right? Like, because you are light, don't forget that you're surrounded by darkness, You're surrounded by it. You are children of light. Darkness abounds. Be on your toes. That you are sheep in the midst of wolves, so stay frosty. Everything is against you. And we don't often think that. Because in our nation, unlike other nations, we've had a pretty good relationship between church and world for a long time. That's quickly coming to an end. A pastor in Arizona just got shot last week for preaching on the corner. So that's coming to an end. We we need to recognize that. So Paul's words could not be more timely to us. But he says, therefore, be careful how you walk. Do what you do on purpose. See, making and acting on biblically informed decisions is what we're called to do. Every decision needing to be biblically informed because nobody ever drifts towards progress. Nobody ever floats towards beneficial things. You stick the rudder in the water and you power the motor in the direction. It, it's always against stream. We, all, we never drift towards strength. That's why Paul says in Philippians 2.12, so then my beloved, just as you always have obeyed, not as in my presence only, but much now, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That doesn't mean make yourself saved. It means you are saved, live accordingly. And that work is the word for labor and striving. And that, that kind of concept is a little uh, anti-cultural, against what we normally are about. Because about that, since about the mid 20th century, we have been, as one author named Neil Postman said, amusing ourselves to death. Right. And he wrote a book called that, Amusing Ourselves to Death. Let me just read you a few quotes from that book. Americans no longer talk to each other, they entertain each other. They do not exchange ideas, they exchange images. They do not argue with propositions, they argue with good looks, celebrities, and commercials. When a population becomes distracted by trivia, when a cultural life is redefined as a perpetual round of entertainments, when serious public conversation becomes a form of baby talk, when in short a people become an audience and their public business a vaudeville act, then a nation finds itself at risk. Culture death is a clear possibility. Most of our daily news is inert, consisting of information that gives us something to talk about, but cannot lead to any meaningful action. And then lastly, people will come to adore the technologies that undo their capacities to think. When do you think that that was written? 
That was written in 1985, 38 years ago, when nobody had a screen in their pocket. But it couldn't be more true today. So walk carefully is the command that we must hear and must do. Now that word, it's one word in the Greek. What it means is a strict conformity to a standard or a norm with a focus on careful attention accurately, a strict conformity to a standard or norm. That's what the word means. We've got to be done saying that following the scriptures is legalism. Following the scriptures is this, is walking wisely. That's what the word means. But every time somebody is, uh, is threatened in their pursuit of Christ's likeness, they just call that person a legalist. We should just be saying, show me how to do what you're doing. I want to walk that carefully. I want to live that intentionally. I want to follow Christ that passionately. Instead of saying, ah, you're a legalist and just clearing our consciences in that way. That walking carefully, you got to think about it like you're walking a rope bridge and every, every uh, a sitcom or TV show or movie or, or book or novel has a scene where the characters are crossing a big ravine or a big canyon and it's on a rope bridge, Right? And then each, each step is just a plank coming across. It's always an old rope bridge, never a new one. And they're walking out carefully, right? Because life and death hang in the balance. You're looking at each plank as you step on it because some of them could be rotten. And you're going to fall the way through. This is the intentionality of walking. Every step I take matters. Every step I take has real consequence because drifting and floating is not a part of Christ-like living. This is what Jesus said, Matthew 12, 30. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. That couldn't be more clear. There's not just a drifting blob of people that are Christ's. You're either with me or you're against me, he says. And if you want to be with Christ, then that means bowing the knee in submission of in your heart, repenting of your sins, calling out in faith, knowing that he will save all who call upon his name in faith. We don't drift and we don't float. But here's what we do say. We got to debunk stuff constantly. Debunking words that pop up in our uh, comfortable vernacular in pop Christianity. One of them is spiritual dryness. I'm just really dry right now. I've just been in a, a spiritual dry time right now. That, that's not a valid status for Christian living. That doesn't exist. Dryness is just one of two things. And it's always one of two things. It's either neglect or sin. Both of those are your fault. None of them are God's fault or your circumstances' fault. So that's what all that can be. You can't be dry if you're drinking from Christ's fountain because what does he picture salvation as? John 4, 14. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I give him will come in a well of water springing up to eternal life. So Jesus' chosen imagery is the opposite. And that's his chosen imagery for just being reborn. But then it goes back even further to Isaiah, Isaiah 55, 1 through 3. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you have no money to, 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 to buy. Come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, says God. Then eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. 
Just as water is always wet, Christ is always life. If you are dry, it's because you are avoiding Christ, either by neglect or sin. And so the problem is never the Bible itself. The problem is never, man, I'm just not getting anything out of this. That's not the problem. Because Isaiah 55 continues in chapter in verses 10 and 11, for the rain, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be, which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. God uses the illustration of water. Water never comes to the ground without making it wet. It never falls on plants without nourishing them. It can't do that. If water hits it, it works. And before it gets evaporated, take it back up into the clouds again and comes back down again. So that's what he's comparing his Bible to. So the problem then is not within the wetness of the rain. It's with my soil is concrete or plastic. Because if it's living and organic, it gets nourished by that word. So then here's the question. What is keeping you from the word of God? And then secondly, what are you going to do about it? Because nobody else can do anything for you. I mean, that's Paul's agony in Galatians chapter 4 when he says, am I laboring in childbirth for you again? And then when he lists off all these pains that he suffers in Second Galatians or Second Corinthians, when he's talking about uh, the beatings and the stonings and the whippings and the, the the shipwreck and the floating in the ocean for a night and a day, and then he says, and then he says, the care of all the churches. What is he? What is he hurting for? More of all things, above all beatings and whippings, is that the people of God would love the Word of God and would grow in Christ likeness. That's the most agonizing thing. For somebody who ministers the word, because you can't make people do it. See, walking carefully means living intentionally, and that command in verse 15 is given to everybody. It's not just given to elders or pastors or deacons. It's every Christian. Walk intentionally, fighting the drift in your own heart. Romans 12, 2 has called us to that. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and pleasing and perfect. How are you going to, that, what that, that verse is giving an imagery of mold breaking. The world is trying to shove you into a mold and how are you gonna shatter that mold if you're not in front of the word of God regularly? If you're not constantly being reshaped by the word of God, what we're called to do here, this walking carefully, is the difference between hiking a game trail in the mountains versus strolling a big city park paved pathway. You can walk on a paved pathway in the nice parks that we have here in McKinney, never even look down, never even think about it. And then you can have everybody all with you, but it's different when you're hiking on a game trail in the mountains. That's a trail that deer and elk and other animals leave, and it's about this wide, and it winds. Every step is intentional, and one step could leave you off of it and roll you all the way down. We're walking intentionally. We're walking on purpose. See, we are to be a joyful people. This is the problem that, uh, or not the problem, this is the, the false stereotype that people who take the word of God seriously are boring and lifeless and have no joy. 
That's a lie. We are to be a joyful people, but we're not to be a flippant people. And what we've done is associated in modern English joy with flippancy. If you're happy, it means nothing serious. Nothing ever matters. That couldn't be more, tr- more untrue. We have the joy of the Lord because we are serious about the word of God. So then how do we live on purpose? Verse 15 says, not as unwise men, but as wise. There's a desperate need for wisdom. It's so desperate that the Bible has three whole books dedicated to just wisdom and a handful of Psalms that are just wisdom. Matthew 10, 16, Jesus says, you're gonna need it. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd, wise, as serpents and innocent as doves. One of the, one of the uh, wisdom books, Ecclesiastes 2, verse 13, and I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. How much better is wisdom than folly? What's the difference as far as light and dark? That's, that's what we need. So the Bible doesn't speak directly about a lot of the things that we deal with today. The Bible doesn't have a direct thing, thou shalt only have Instagram if you have these things in place, or thou shalt never have Twitter or X or whatever it's called now. It doesn't say anything about social media. It doesn't say anything about democratic republics that didn't exist in the first century and prior. It doesn't say anything about self-driving cars or universal health care or all these other things. But biblical wisdom does give us means to understand all of those things and to walk not as unwise, but as wise. See, wisdom principles guide us to think like God. Let me give you an example from the Old Testament in an unlikely place. Exodus 22, 14 through 15. If a man borrows anything from his neighbor, in the context being like an ox or a donkey, and it is injured or dies while its owner is not with it, he shall make full restitution. If its owner is with it, he shall not make restitution. If it is hired, it came for its hire. So you would read that and you get to your Bible reading plan, you're in Exodus 22, and you're just trying to get past it. But does this have biblical wisdom for us? Can we draw principles from it? We can draw just three real quick. Neighbor's generosity should be respected. I should respect my neighbor's generosity and sharing his equipment with me because we don't use donkeys and we don't use oxen anymore, but we use battery-powered weed eaters and wheelbarrows and pressure washers. Number two, risk of loss comes in doing business. You're going to use a tool, you could break it. That should be expected in a world that we live in. Thirdly, helping others at a loss to yourself is a good thing. It's still godly to let my thing be loaned knowing he might break it. That's hard to do when you got a lot of books. And I have a lot of books. People are like, can I borrow that? And I'm like, yes, you can, brother. But please bring it back. And sometimes you got to go rebuy that book because they take it to Cancun and leave it there. So where does wisdom begin? If we're supposed to have this, where does it begin? Proverbs 9.10 tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's where it begins. And when we hear fear of the Lord, we need to expand our understanding of that. Fear of the Lord is believing God more than you believe man. Believing God is who he is and will do what he says he was going to do. And that whatever he says, when it comes into conflict, whatever I'm hearing from other people, I'm going to believe him and not them. I'm, I'm thinking about it. If I had to fight too, I'm more afraid of him than you. So I'd rather fight you than him. That's who I'd rather be. 
So the fear of the Lord is beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. If we will live wisely in our day, it will be because we fear God and not men. It will be because we respect the creator-creature distinction. Because if we fear men more than we fear God, then we will either live in frantic chaos or despair because it'll never be stable and it'll never be godly, or we'll go broke worshiping those idols. And if we don't respect the creator-creature distinction, which wisdom literature tells us to do, God is creator, we are not, then the same thing will occur. Only you might begin to view yourself as God which will either crush you because of failures, you keep failing, you keep not getting that promotion, you keep not succeeding the things that you set out to do, or it will poison you because of successes. Everything I do keeps working and I keep getting promoted and I keep making more money. It will poison you to think that you should be worshiping yourself. So what do we do instead? Verse 16 says, make the most of your time because the days are evil. Now the ESV and the NASB translations of the Bible say make the most of your time. King James, New King James, and the Legacy Standard translated redeeming. Both are good. It, the, it's a word that's it, it's ex agarazzo, which means redeeming, but it means not redemption in the same kind of way we think about it, like Jesus redeeming us on the cross. There's, there's crossover there, but it's a different word. So making the most of is actually a faithful trans, translation. It means that you're making a secure deliverance or you're, you're gaining advantage, you're taking uh, advantage of an opportunity. That's what that, that word means, making the most out of something that seemed useless. You're turning what looked like a loss into a gain. That's what that word means. It's also in Colossians, Colossians 4, 5. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity or redeeming the opportunity. Now, what can that mean beyond anything but do not waste your life? That's what that verse means. Do not waste your life. You have one life to live and there are no redos. You don't ever get to go back. Every minute that goes by is one minute closer to your funeral. And we need to be able to say that without some kind of, oh, that's morose and sad. No, it's just true. And what happens on the other side of that funeral? Glory. So we should just live according to what's true. How many seconds tick down totally Wasted. Now, this isn't a verse that you can use to just bludgeon people who ever go on vacation or ever have a hobby or anything like that. That's not the point of this verse. The sheer fact that biologically we have to go lay completely flat for five to eight hours proves God's in control and he doesn't need us, that our bodies do need to be restored, our minds do need to be uh, brought back, we do need rest. However, this text, this verse should cause us to evaluate our recreation and leisure because we've turned recreation and leisure not just into like pastimes, but that's what we do. It's no longer those are the things that distract us. It's that our real life is distracting us from our leisure and our recreation. So we had to ask ourselves, do we serve it or does it serve us? Are we serving are we serving the video game console? Are we serving the deer blind? Are we serving the golf course? Are we serving the girl's trip? Are we serving the knitting circle? If anybody knits anymore, whatever it is, whatever your hobby is, or is it serving us? Am I going, man, I just need to unwind and man, going and sitting in a duck blind for a day would just be great. Or is it the other way around that all I'm thinking about is my leisure? Because there is a day coming when our life's work will be a closed book. That's it. The book on your life is done. 
If you go ahead and buy a, a gravestone early, you have your birth year and a dash, and then it's empty. Eventually, they're going to fill that in. And it's going to be it. That, that's that's going to be the totality of your life. And today is the day to make the most of your time. Just like Jesus says, night is coming when no one can work. Now we got to work because we don't know when that day will come. So we got to ask ourselves this question. Where are the Christians who are exhausting themselves for Christ? Where are the George Whitfields who would say, I would rather wear out than burn out? Or I would rather wear out than rust out? And then Amy Carmichael, a missionary, about 100 years later, or 150 years later, she says the same thing. I would rather burn out. They're like, Amy, you're going to burn out. I would rather burn out than rust out. What rusts? Things that just sit there and do nothing and get wet. Our lives are a vapor. We know that. James 4.14 says it. Our days are maxed out 80, 90-ish years. Psalm 90 verse 10 says that. So are you giving yourself to anything of eternal value? Are you only giving yourself to things that you can see, the temporal? Or are you giving yourself to things that you can't see, the eternal? (laughs) Are you refraining from giving yourself to things you know are eternal because you've shackled yourself to things you know are temporal? You know this is going to end, but you've shackled yourself to it, so then you can't give yourself to anything that's eternal. Choosing careers and money over children, taking every promotion offered, even if it just wrecks your family and moves you to places where there aren't good churches, there aren't good community, patronistically missing church for sports or hobbies. I mean, have, have your kids that play sports ever seen you choose church over tournament championship? Or do they always see that every time anything competes with the gathering saints to worship God, that loses? And like, wow, they got the rest of their life to go to church. When are they going to get taught that? At whatever godless college they go to? Now is the time to teach them that. Are you accumulating unnecessary debt for toys while missionaries are struggling to eat? I mean, this is what it's talking us or forcing us to think about. Are you making the most of your time? That word redeem also means buy. Are you buying that time? I'm going to buy it back and I'm going to use it for what is good. I'm not going to let it just go downstream. I'm going to grab it and buy it and use it. Because your time is a stewardship and you've been commanded to make the most of it. Here's the thing that you got to think. At the end of your life, are you going to break the tape of that finish line? And are you going to collapse on the other side of it, exhausted, out of breath, bleeding, drenched in sweat, and soaked in tears? Or are you going to stroll through that finish line, sipping a latte and licking a cake pop? How are we going to finish? We need men and women with Caleb's spirit. That's why we read what we read in Joshua 14. Because Caleb said, it's been 45 years since God promised that, and I'm just as ready today as I was 45 years ago. What was he doing to still be in the physical shape to not just go and build a campsite? He's got to go on top of the highest part of the land, which is always harder to attack, and it's got the biggest guys, the Anakim, the descend- or the, uh, the progenitors of Goliath. He's like, that's where I want to go. 
I want to go there on that hill, and I'm 85 years old, and I got boots on, and I'm just as good as going in and coming out, so let me have it now, Kayla, or Joshua. And Joshua says, go ahead. We need those kinds of men. Our sons and daughters need to see a church full of Caleb's and Caleb's so that they know what a total devotion to Christ and his gospel looks like, and they know that it's normal, that that's the normal Christian life. And that we don't quit until our breath gives out and none of it's for our glory so that you can say, look at Caleb, look how great he is. No, look at God who sustained a man through the wilderness and kept him strong all the way till the end so that he might get glory. And everybody that comes and looks at that hill, hey, the Anakim used to live there. No, but Caleb and the son of the Kenizzite lives there. Well, how did he get it? Because of his God. His God brought it all the way there. So why do we make the most of our time? Because the days are evil. The days are evil means they're full of sin. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. My son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That's the wrong passage. That's from 1 Timothy. Copy and paste it wrong. 1 Timothy, the passage that I was reading from 2 Timothy chapter 1 talks about the days are evil and then it lists off a lineage of sins that come with these days. And then sometimes what we think is that those days were not now. Why are those days not now? Those days are always now. And the days are evil because they're so sinful and they're so wicked. There's no other witness but the church. So therefore, the situation is life and death. Sometimes it's as we live like functional universalists. There is no hell. Everybody's going to make it. But there is a hell and there is a heaven. And we have to live like that because the days are evil. And there are people wrapped up by that mindset. So the days are evil because they are wicked, but the days are evil because, also because they're short. They're finite. Why do we have limited days that can be numbered? That wasn't the garden. We have limited days because sin enters the world through one man and death through sin. So death is coming, and that's a result of the days being evil. So your time is running out, there is an urgency for the Great Commission, meaning the evangelization of the nations, including our own. So then what do we do? How do we redeem this time? Verse 17. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. What is a fool? A fool is someone who refuses to behave according to the truth. That's what a fool is. Psalm 14, 1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. There is a God. Fools say there is none, not living according to the truth. Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but what do fools do? They despise wisdom and instruction. A fool is someone who won't live according to the truth. It would be foolish to behave as if the days weren't evil, full of wickedness and finite. Bunyan said that if a man would live well, if a man would live wisely, he would fetch his last day and bring it to himself and keep it always as his company keeper. You know, that imagery is so, it's so impactful to me. It's like running to the end of the calendar of your life and you grab that last day, whatever it is, November 19th, you pick it up and you carry it with you, knowing eventually I'm going to get to this day. So now how do I live according to this day? This day is coming. That's how you live, not as a fool, but as wise, because fools remain ignorant and self-focused. Christians are not free to do life-wise. So what do we do? 
We relentlessly pursue God's will. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, that's a question that we've all asked. That's the prayer request we've all given in a small group. I just want to know what God's will for my life is. And or you come to a pastor or to a friend, an elder, and say, what's God's will for my life? And what we usually mean when we say that is, I want to know the special custom handbook that God has written for all of the cool things that are going to happen for me in my life. Usually around what job do I take? Who do I marry? Where do I go to college? What house do I buy? What car dealership should I go with? Those kinds of things. But what does the Bible say God's will is for you? 1 Thessalonians 4.3 is what? For this is the will of God, your sanctification. The will of God for every Christian is to grow up in Christ, to be holy as he is holy. And then the rest of every other verse in the Old and New Testaments. That's his will for you. So what we need to do is stop looking around for that customized plan about things that are not right or wrong, but just really right or left. Just pick a direction and then do what? Be faithful. 1 Corinthians 4.2 says the steward above all things must be found faithful. Wherever you are, serve God there. Do God's will there, grow in sanctification there, because we can only read providence backwards. When we talk about, like, I want to know what God's will is for my life, we want to know, like, all the things that are going to happen and how they're going to happen to end up where I end up. But nobody gets to know that on the front end. You can only read it backwards. Some, some theologians said that providence is like Hebrew. You read it backwards, because Hebrew, you read from right to left. Because look, look at, just look at Esther and Mordecai's lives. Do they have any idea what's coming on the next verse or the next page? <laughs> they never know anything. But when you get to the end of chapter 10, you can look back and go, wow, look at all those things that happened in those ways in order for us to be here. They didn't get told that beforehand, but they could read it going backwards. So if you ever get to know why God did what he did in your life, it will only be after it happened. So then we need to stop striving. I got to know beforehand. You're never going to know beforehand. So we have to do what? Understand what the will of the Lord is. The will of the Lord revealed to us in Scripture. Reading, then, must become understanding. So uh, the big charge earlier about getting your Bibles, what's keeping you from it. There's nothing gained by reading and never thinking and never meditating on the scriptures because every atheist and every online chat room says, I read the whole Bible page to page, cover to cover. And I've never seen this, never seen that. And I'm like, really? Okay, what happens to Deuteronomy chapter five? Tell me what Proverbs 21, 12 says. How does that fit into the meta narrative of the scriptures? How does God use the topic of the conversation of a covenant throughout end to end? When does the first gospel happen? That's not, if you can't tell anybody those basic things, you didn't read it. If you read Pride and Prejudice, you're like, who are the main characters? You're like, I don't know. Then you didn't read it. I don't care if your eyes washed over those black letters on white pages, that's not it. You have to move on to understanding. We're to understand the will of God. Did you read it? Wonderful. Did you meditate? Because that's where blessing is. Psalm 1, 1, 2 says that. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But what does he do instead? His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. 
Now, meditation has been co-opted by Eastern mysticism to sit there and empty your brain out. That couldn't be more demonic. What meditation is, is to chew on the word until you get everything out of it. Meditation is the same word for, for, uh, for cattle that chew the cud, meaning they, they chew the grass initially, then they bring it back up and chew it more. They're squeezing every single drop of nutrient out of that grass. That's what biblical meditation is. So it means like, oh, yeah, yeah, I read, I read Matthew you know, a couple years ago. Have you met it? What, what's it about? Have you, have you squeezed it out so much that it's in you? And the thing about the scriptures is that you're never going to be done squeezing it out. You're never going to be like, oh, yeah, I'm bored with Romans. <laughs> or yeah, Isaiah's kind of, yeah, we did that. We did that a while back. Now, a lady's doing Philippians right now. You could do it again as soon as you finish it, and it would still be good. That's what the word of God, that's we meditating on it. It's, a, it's not a 15-minute process. It's all day, and it's lifelong. So then as we close here, wisdom is crying out in the streets. We saw a command for wisdom there. In Proverbs chapter 8, wisdom is pictured as a woman. So a lot of times in, in the wisdom literature, so Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, places like that, uh, entities will be personified, and usually personified by women. So wisdom is personified by a woman or lust will be personified by a woman. But the woman wisdom, she's crying out in the streets to the ignorant, saying, come to me for life. She says in Proverbs 8.10, take my instruction and not silver and knowledge rather than choicest gold. She's saying, I know your eyes are going to the silver and gold, but I promise you, take what I have to offer, the instruction, the knowledge Why? Because wisdom is better than jewels and all desirable things cannot compare with her. If you have wisdom, whatever else is available doesn't even compare. If you have godly wisdom, whatever else is available out there for you doesn't compare to her. So get her. Secondly, the realities of the narrow path. That's what verses 15, 16, and 17 have been talking about. The narrow path is hard, slow, and careful. We walk it carefully and we're so drawn to the, the, the broad path. And what's interesting is like the, you take all the imagery of the scriptures, particularly Jesus's parables and uh, the broad path and narrow path. And you have wheats and the tares. We live among the tares as wheat. So it's kind of like the two paths run parallel for a good while, at least where you can see across to the broad path. And you're like, man, it just, ah, just be a little easier to get over there. I mean, there's people over there. It's, and I can still see. I, can, I mean, I know what's going to happen. That's why Pilgrim's Progress is so great because he just talks about a path the whole time and, and ways that look like a shortcut, they never are. And they either kill the people who go on it or it gets Christian pummeled by a giant. So you can see that and you go, okay, I'm not going on that. I walk intentionally and it is hard and it is slow and it is like the, the rope bridge plank for plank. But verse or chapter four of Proverbs verses 11 through 13, we know that it's drenched in the grace of God. I have directed you in the way of wisdom. I have led you in upright paths. When you walk, your steps will not be impeded. And if you run, you will not stumble. Take hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. That wisdom that just looks a little more tricky and involved, 
scripture says it's your life. But if you're on that narrow path, it looks too hard to walk on, but you can run. And when you run, you're not going to stumble. And when you walk, you're not going to be impeded. That way is a lot better than what you think it's going to be every single time you continue up that hill. And then lastly, I want to end with this. We need, when we look at verses like this, we see that and you're like, boom, that's heavy. And we think about, man, redeeming the time and, and, and living so faithfully and exhausting ourselves for, for Christ. And, and it's helpful for us in our frailty. We are dust, we're worms, the, the Psalms call us. It's helpful to have other brothers and sisters who've gone before us. If I can make one plea, I know not all of us are readers. I didn't read a single book on purpose until I was married for like five or six years. So there's hope for you. You can make it. All of y'all are smarter than me. But reading good Christian biographies, we need better heroes because Jackie Robinson and Neil Armstrong ain't going to cut it. We need better heroes. Pick up a book and even just read it at pieces at the dinner table, ingratiate it into your, your family worship. Let your kids know these are heroes. And you'll see their flaws if it's a good biography. They're not, it's not going to turn into hero worship that we're somehow lionizing a man or a woman. But you can read Amy Carmichael's life. Your daughters can go, wow, that's what I can do for Christ? You can read uh, uh, George Lyell, the first missionary to come from the United States who was formerly a freed slave. And there are churches in Jamaica now because of him. Read about Adoniram Judson. I've recently read his biography, known his story for a long time, but read the biography to the Golden Shore. And you realize what he went through in this late 1700s, early 1800s. He buried two wives. One of them got dropped off a boat in the ocean that died. He buried six children by coming from Boston to Burma, current day Myanmar, to translate the Bible into their language. The king hated him. Everybody else didn't want him. But there are faithful churches, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches in Myanmar today because of one guy's life. And he said at the end of his life when he was dying, because he eventually, he has, there's, there's a book called, if you want to read it, uh, the, uh, the, three y, the Three Mrs. Judsons, because one dies on the mission field and gets buried in Burma. The other dies in the ocean when they're on a boat. And the third one dies like a few months after he dies when she makes it back to the United States. But when he's dying, they think, well, if we get him out of the jungle and out to the ocean, the sea air will help him because you don't have any medical uh, expertise beyond that. And when he's dying, there's not, a, there's not a single Christian on the boat. And he's maybe 60. I can't remember. He's not, he's not past 65. And he's alone on that boat. He spent his whole life translating the Bible from, Bur- from English into Burmese so that they could have a Bible now. He's dying in a cabin. And he says how few there are who die so hard. And he was in the throes of pain himself. And he's talking about how nobody else has to go through this. I mean, the difficulty of it all. There's a bit of lament. But that phrase has become in the modern missions movement, a cry, a rallying cry. How few there are who die so hard. Meaning that it doesn't matter what it costs. I'm going to follow Christ. It doesn't matter that I've spent my whole life. When he got, he got, arrested by the Burmese authorities, but just because he was white and they were at war with England and they were like, yeah, you're probably British. And you know what they did in Burmese jails in the 1800s? 
After they made you walk miles barefoot to the jail, they would string you up every night with a bamboo pole between your feet. They would tie your feet together, all the prisoners, and then run a pole and then raise the pole up so that your feet are in the air and your shoulders are on the ground all night long. And your feet are open sores that bugs are eating all night long. And he lives through that and stays and keeps translating and keeps winning people to Christ, keeps baptizing new believers. So he says, when he dies, how few there are who die so hard. We should say, yes, but there should be more. And that should be us. I mean, imagine what we could be. Our church, what if it was known that our church, that everybody who walked in this door goes, those people redeem the time. Those people walk carefully, not as unwise, but as wise. Those people are full of the grace of God, They can all give an account for the gospel within them. They all know the Lord Jesus Christ. They die hard. And there's not that few of them. There's a whole lot of them in there. What if that was us? What if we were just a bunch of Judsons? Would that not glorify the Lord? Absolutely, it would. May it be so. And may we encourage each other along the way and not look down on other people that we can't shoot our own wounded. (laughs) We pick them up and we carry them along with us because it's a whole group going down that pathway. Father in heaven, I do thank you so much for these dear saints. I do thank you so much for these brothers and sisters in our church. Lord, where would we be if we didn't have each other? Where would we be if we didn't have a phone call, to, uh, just a phone call away from somebody to pray for you? Somebody to watch your kids because you have a family crisis, uh, a meal train because you had a baby or you had surgery. Or where would we be if we didn't have brothers and sisters that were in, your, in the word, in the scriptures, coming to us and, and talking to us about it? And, and that can be a, a goad, an encouragement for us to get back into the word because so-and-so was asking this question and, and I didn't know what I, I didn't have anything to say and I want to. And Lord, thank you so much. Thank you so much that you haven't made us a bunch of lone wolves. Sometimes we want that. Sometimes we want the anonymity. Sometimes we want to just be able to drift along. We don't want to walk carefully. We, we want to be comfortable in darkness. But Father, thank you for the church, that, that we're a, a plurality of people, that you've made us not an archipelago, a bunch of islands next to each other, but we are one connected landmass, and that we are bought with a price, and that we are all the bride of Christ, that we are all waiting for our, our bridegroom to come and to return, that we all have that same Savior, now we were all we all came through the same narrow gate. It's just one person wide through faith in Christ that nobody's here because of their own strength. Nobody's in Christ because of their own wisdom or their upbringing or the great family that they came from or the exposure they had to good teaching here and there. It's all because of grace. Lord, thank you for that these charges that come so heavily and so clearly, loudly, but walking carefully pursuing wisdom, redeeming the time, knowing the days are evil, that we don't hear those and then have a competition. You didn't give the same set of instructions to a bunch of people who are in competition with each other. You gave the same word to one people who are all collectively doing that. Lord, may we love each other in the various stages of sanctification that we're all in. May we bear with one another when we're sinned against. May we bear with one another when others are just in a hard time. May we not grow weary in doing good, especially to those who are the household of the faith. And Lord, may we value all the more 
the gathering, that being here matters, that, that the, the weekly, regular, face-to-face interactions and the, and the joining in with the chorus of praise to you, that that matters to us. We need it. We need it so much more as we see the darkness just moving towards pitch black outside. Lord God, we pray for the children in our church. I thank you for each of the dear children in our church, teenagers on down. Lord, would you see fit to bring each one of them into the kingdom? Would each one of the children in our church know Christ in a saving way, be born again, May we just have a line out the door of children in our church that want to be baptized in Christ because they know their Savior. And as we sang earlier, that he lives. They can say with Job all those millennia ago, I know that my Redeemer lives and I know I will see him stand on the earth. Or may that be true of our children. And may it be true of those that we're connected to that are lost Lord, the the husbands and the wives that are lost, the the uncles and the aunts, the grandparents, the adult children that are gone from the house. Lord, may they, through the humble means of this church, may they hear the good news. May their hearts be broken. May they bow the knee in faith and be born again. Lord, we don't care how big we are. We don't care where we meet. Uh, We don't care about all those things, but they can grow too big in our minds. We know that but we, we just want to be faithful. Lead us on the narrow path and help us to be faithful. As the psalmist prays in Psalm 25, 4 and 5, teach us your ways. Lead us on your path. Teach us our ways, your ways, O Yahweh, because you are the one we hope for. You are our salvation. We lift all this up to you, Lord, so humbly, but yet joyfully, expectantly. In Christ's name, amen.